Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. My guest today, and very appropriately, as there's so much news out of Russia, and as we are so perplexed by what Russia wants, what is going on there, why it seems to be so associated with international criminality. Well, to talk about that, we have Mark Galliotti, who joins us from London, and of course, the co-host, Linda Gasparello, who is right here with me. Mark, you're an academic, and you've written an incredible 22 books, I believe. I don't know how anyone writes 22 books, but my hat, so to speak, is off to you. Uh, how did you become interested in Russia, which is such a perplexing place to most of us? Well, in some ways, that, that's already the answer. No, I've, I've, as long as I can remember, been fascinated by this country. Look, I'm by training an historian, and... As a historian, I'm really all about the stories. And for me, Russia has always had the most extraordinary stories. Ones in which, yes, of course, the blood is that much more sanguine and the horrors often that much darker. But also as a result, the heroism tends to glitter that much more brightly. So really, I mean, as I said, since I, I was at school, I, I've just been sort of obsessed with this place. Um, my very first trip there was to the Soviet Union. Uh, was when I was 14 and my mother took me on the, the, the classic Moscow and what was then Leningrad uh, tourist trip. And therefore, sort of since then, I have been continuing to, to visit, to study and to, to engage with this extraordinary country. And you're welcome there. You go there regularly. I do. I do. I mean, welcome. Well, <laughs> they continue at the moment to let me in. Um, which, which is a plus. No, I mean, I think in fairness, look, the regime, which is, it is an authoritarian regime, but it, it's not Stalinism, it's not North Korea, it's not Iran. They understand that, that journalists and academics and, and others are going often to be critical and are going often to be poking in the, the murky undersides of the country. And that's, that's par for the course. So Mark, um, you've got uh, entry into, into Russia and yet, Vladimir Putin has declared many uh, journalists who go in as foreign agents, and there seems to be more of a crackdown these days. What do you make of that? Well, certainly, really in the past year, things have got a lot tougher. Um, this business of labeling people as foreign agents, I mean, in some ways, that's an, an administrative hurdle. It doesn't instantly mean that people are being expelled or whatever. It just simply makes life more difficult for them if they're deemed to be backed by Western money and, and so forth. We've also seen a, a few journalists expelled, but that's essentially for political reasons. And from my point of view, yes, this is moving towards an environment that is that much more permissive. I mean, really, ever since opposition leader Alexei Navalny was poisoned um, a year ago, which did represent a serious break. I mean, we, people often have this notion that anyone who's in the opposition in Russia is being arrested or being killed or whatever. It's not the case. Until relatively recently, there was actually quite a significant space for opposition figures to continue to campaign because in a way the state felt confident. Well, what we've seen is actually the state getting increasingly nervous about the situation and as it does so, it gets more vicious, it gets more restrictive. And in fact, we're recording this on the first day of three days of parliamentary elections in Russia. And in the lead up to that, there's been all kinds of um, 
pressure being brought to bear, Navalny's political organization basically being being smashed. And, and clearly there, there has been a swing to a more authoritarian regime. But again, I, I think we need to appreciate that this is not absolute. There are still people who campaign against the government. There are still people who are doing a lot of really very um, deep and penetrating investigative journalists, including Russians. And I think this is one of the really optimistic signs about Russia is that amidst this crackdown, nonetheless, there are Russians, especially but not exclusively young Russians, who are still willing to be investigative journalists. And it's worth noting, after all, that actually the job of being a local investigative journalist in Russia, the sort of person who's you know, trying to turn up corruption stories in the provincial capitals and that kind of thing, it is, if one looks in global terms, as dangerous as being a war correspondent. But nonetheless, they continue to do it. And I think this, this shows that there is a hunger for some kind of change within Russia. And that's one of the things that, again, keeps me going back because it's great to be able to chronicle that. I mean, I, I, I saw the um, reforms of the Gorbachev years in the 1980s where there was this you know, real feeling that something could change, which then unfortunately then ran into the sand and led to the collapse of this system. The 1990s, a period of real anarchy in which a minute fraction of the population were making money hand over fist largely by industrial scale embezzlement. And this is when the age of the oligarchs was, was born. People were just privatizing whole industries into their back pocket for cents on the dollar. Well, while the majority of the Russian population was living truly miserable, hard, hard lives. And then we've seen the, the Putin years, which seemed to offer a certain amount of stability, but now it's become the stability of stagnation. And once again, one can feel pressures beginning to build up and a desire for change. Just give us a quick thumbnail of your academic background. I know you taught at, taught at New York University. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I did my first degree, a history degree at Cambridge University. Then after a year of working in, in the city of London, I then went to do my PhD at the London School of Economics, which was, whereas my first degree was in history, my, my PhD was in politics, and I studied the impact of the the previous Afghan war, the Soviet-Afghan war on the Soviet Union, because this was a time when, when the Soviets were just going through their own painful pullout from, Af from Afghanistan. Um, then my, my first job, I was uh, at a university called Kiel in the centre of, of, of Britain, um, where I rose to become head of the history department. And in that time, I spent a bit of time attached to the British Foreign Office as a advisor and a research fellow. Then I hopped across the, the Atlantic to New York University, where I became the head of the Center for Global Affairs. And then after a bit of time in Moscow, I then moved to uh, a Czech think tank in Prague, the Institute of International Relations. Then I was, and I'm getting kind of, I am coming to the end of this recitation. Um, it is a, quite, uh, a, quite a Niagara <laughs> Falls of achievements. <laughs> Well, and then uh, a visiting professorship at the European University Institute in Florence, and then I, I, I returned to the UK, where I'm an honorary professor at University College London, but also run my own small consultancy called Mayak Intelligence. You can't look at America through one city. You can't look at it through New York, and you can't look at it through Washington. And we are a large, diverse country with three time zones, but a lot of mobility. 
and people come from all parts of the states and it's not a big deal where you come from. Russia has what, 11 time zones, it's enormously mm -hmm. spread up, has a largely impoverished population, which is not mobile. How much can we know of Russia? When we say Russia, are we talking about what happens in Moscow and maybe St. Petersburg? Uh, is there another Russia out there that is uncovered, unknown, and a mystery? Well, let me give you the classic academic's answer of it depends. I mean, on one level, when we say Russia, we are talking about its role in the world, you know, whether it's in terms of hacking elections, fighting wars in Syria or whatever. And there, clearly, all power is in Moscow. I mean, this is a very, very centralized state. But on the other hand, you are absolutely right that there are many Russias in a way. And you know, if one goes to Moscow, for example, I mean, Moscow is a tremendously exciting, vibrant, modern European city. Um, it's interesting. I, um, when I was at New York University, I would bring groups of graduate students uh, over to Russia for sort of 10, 10 day, two week sort of research trips. And in advance, I would tend to ask them, you know, what are you expecting? Because most of these, they were not Russia specialists. They were general global affairs specialists. And usually what I would get is all the tropes from 1970s spy movies. They're expecting it to be dour and gray and dim. And then they would arrive at this city that quite frankly out New York's in terms of New York, in terms of being a 24 seven city. Um, and so, so that's one, one Russia and, and the sort of the old capital of St. Petersburg, not quite uh, at the same scale, but still, you know, again, it, it is a modern and advanced city. And then absolutely, I mean, there, there, is, there is provincial Russia. But the interesting thing is, I remember once um, going on an exceedingly long road trip um, up to the Seliga Lakes, which are more or less between Moscow and St. Petersburg. And, and we were driving through, and we were passing through areas of you know, clear rural poverty. The thing that struck me was, I mean, it reminded me of some of the rural poverty that I had seen in Vermont, for example. And there is a sense, actually, that, that the interesting thing is that poverty is poverty, similarly. Likewise, I mean, I, when I went to um, the city of Kazan, which is the capital of the region of Tatarstan, which is a primarily Muslim region that was brought into the, the Russian Empire as far back as the 16th century. Well, there the interesting thing is you, you go to, to the Kremlin in Kazan. The word Kremlin just means the fortress, the sort of central bastion of the city. And there in the Kremlin, right next to each other, there is a huge and ornate Russian Orthodox cathedral. And next to that, an even more huge and even more ornate mosque. You know, the two coexisting perfectly easily. So, I mean, look, I, I could go on, I could fill this entire program with, with lots more vignettes of you know, the Russian Far East, particularly on, on the Chinese border, which is being affected by a huge amount of, of Chinese cash flowing in, much of it for the purposes of money laundering, but we won't go there. Um, all the way through to the sort of, well, the newly reincorporated, as the Russians would think of it, uh, peninsula of Crimea. But yes, you're absolutely right. That it's a very, very varied country. But the one thing I would say is in terms of power, all power flows towards Moscow. And secondly, there is a, a standard, shall we say, a common culture. And the interesting thing is it's absolutely European. Mark, why is there such a high level of support for Vladimir Putin in, among Russians? Is it a matter of patriotism uh, instead of supporting his programs or his means of staying in power? 
why is it? I see, I see independent polling that shows very high levels of support in my, for him. Yeah, this is a topic that I kind of grappled with in one of my books called We Need to Talk About Putin. And the interesting thing is that on the one hand, Putin has approval ratings that tend to be in the 60%, sometimes even higher than that. And let's be perfectly honest, I mean, any Western politician would happily sell his own granny for that kind of an approval rating. But on the other hand, when you look at trust ratings, it's about half that, and consistently so. Now, look, either it means that there's a large chunk of Russians who actually like the idea of having a dishonest and duplicitous president, which I don't actually believe, or else what actually speaks to is in some ways there are two Putins. Remember, this is the, the man who has been in charge, whether as president or prime minister, but president in effect, for over 20 years. You know, he has been the one fixed point in the circulating constellations of Russian politics. And very much he is kind of associated with, with Russia and its place in the world and so forth. Remember, you know, he's also the man who, as many Russians would think, rescued them from the anarchy of the 1990s. And at the risk of sounding glib, made Russia great again. Certainly made it into a, you know, a serious world power once again. So in this respect, there is Putin, the icon or avatar of Russia, that you approve of really more as a, a statement of exactly, as you said, of patriotism. And then there's Putin, the politician, the person who you rate because of how well you think his program's working and whether you think he's actually achieving it. And that's in a way where I think that the, what, what the trust rating shows us. So, you know, again, th this, is, this is a complex situation. I think a lot of, there's a lot of people who respect Putin for what he's done, but would like to see him go. I remember once talking to, to one person who said, look, I'm looking forward to the point when we can put statues of Putin up in the main square, but he's not in the Kremlin. And I think that's the important thing, that, 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 that they, they can respect past successes while also thinking, come on, mate, you know, it's, it's, it's time you moved on. It's time we had someone new. Mark, what does Russia want? It seems to be out to annoy, aggravate, uh, and generally uh, cause problems across the globe, whether it's uh, some destabilization of the Baltic states to messing in American elections, to, of course, its role in Syria, uh, or its pressure on the uh, Central Asian states, subtle but always there, or it's rather direct pressure in the Balkans. What does Russia want? What is all this about? This is not like the days of the Soviet Union when they were advancing an ideology. They're not advancing an ideology. They're advancing mischief, almost for mischief's sake, it looks like. Well, again, we have to divide between Russia as in the Kremlin and Russia as in ordinary Russians. Um, the interesting thing is that ordinary Russians, you know, what do they want? They basically want the same things as us. It's quite interesting when, when they're surveyed, you know, what really matters to you? You know, being a great power and being feared or respected around the world, you know, that features very low down on their list of priorities. You know, what, what, what do they want? They want, you know, a decent quality of life and the thought that their kids are going to have a better quality of life. They want to feel that they can actually set up businesses without them being stolen or, you know, basically predated upon by corrupt officials, all that kind of thing. 
The Kremlin, on the other hand, and Putin, it's rather different. You've got to remember, Putin, he, he's 68. He is a representative of a particular generation. That generation that had this real psychological blow of the loss of empire. Um, that It's not just that they were educated in the Soviet times, but they, they actually had their early career experiences. They knew, they thought they knew the way the world was going. They thought they knew what their lives were gonna be like. And then suddenly, almost literally overnight, this great empire of the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact possessions in Europe collapsed. And they were left in a Russia that was basically a basket case and was seen as not a player, but a problem on the world scene. And this is, this is quite traumatic. I mean, let's face it, you know, not from the experience of, of Britain and indeed France, that the end of empire can be problematic, but particularly when it's also in a time of real sort of hardship. And in some ways they've gone through from a period of thinking, what have we lost? To thinking, and who took it from us? So there is a lot of anger. There is a lot of sense that actually the, the, the West has, has done Russia down. And there is also, I think, a, a growing paranoia um, within that, that generation, a belief that in fact the West is out to get them, that the West actually has some deep, dark conspiratorial plans for Russia, that they want it either at best marginalized politically and at worst broken or even broken up. And for them, they are deeply aware of the fact that Russia is not the Soviet Union. It is actually weaker than the West on pretty much any index from economic dynamism, even to military power. I mean, the Russian military is substantial and serious, but compared with NATO, it is not um, on, on the same league. And so from their point of view, from the Kremlin's point of view, what it has to do is essentially to divide us because the West as, you know, as a block is much, much more powerful than individual countries. It wants to demoralize us so that there are people who say, look, we have to make a deal with Russia because this is just too dangerous. And it wants to distract us. I mean, one thing that they do understand is that the modern West, modern democratic countries are in some ways the attention deficit disorder nations. That today we are absolutely committed to something and this is a really important problem and we might, oh, shiny, we suddenly get distracted by something else. And that, you know, we are always caught in the electoral cycle, the news cycle and so forth. So, you know, part of their reasoning is exactly to keep us distracted by other problems and challenges. Because look, as far as Putin is concerned, and I think this is something that, 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 does, that does scare me, is that he believes that Russia is at war with the West. A political war, not a shooting war. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that it would become a shooting war. But nonetheless, he thinks that it's a war and one that he thinks we started because we try to interfere. We try to tell him what to do. We try to tell him that he shouldn't be poisoning or shooting his political opponents, that he shouldn't be in, you know, interfering in other places. So he sees that as, as aggression and he's pushing back. But as I say, I think it's really important to stress that this is not something that is actually resonates with ordinary Russians. Ordinary Russians, um, you know, they're, they're not committed to this. This is one of the reasons why, for example, Moscow continues to lie about the presence of its troops in Ukraine, Donbass region. Not because it thinks that we're going to be eventually sort of change our minds about what's going on, but to reassure Russians that, you know, young Ivan is not going to come home in a zinc box from his military service. Likewise, this is why they use mercenaries or sort of mercenaries in Syria, the so-called Wagner group, 
to stiffen the Syrian ground troops. Because if they're just mercenaries, then they can say, well, it's nothing to do with us. They just happen to be mercenaries employed by Damascus, when in fact, these are Russian soldiers recruited in Russia, trained in Russia, and paid by Russia. So the reason is this, this is, it's denial. It's denying what's going on, but not to the West primarily, but to the Russian people. So that is an interesting kind of constraint. Linda? Um, Mark, when leaders uh, don't deliver, uh, there's usually, they find the wrath at the ballot box. Uh, these, election, these elections that are coming up seem, in the parliament seem to be quite critical for Putin's party. Are people um, dissatisfied enough to really land a blow on, on Putin? Or has Putin managed to stifle the opposition to a point where they can't really express their opposition? The interesting thing is a, a, an authoritarian regime like Putin's that is trying to avoid simply being a, a ruthless, brutal dictatorship like, say, Belarus next door. You know, it doesn't want to be constantly oppressing its own people. But on the other hand, nor does it want to lose an election. One of the ways that they do that is by control of the narrative. And a real triumph, frankly, of Putin's, the Russians call them political technologists, you know, political managers, is actually managing to convince so many Russians that change is either impossible or actually would be undesirable and dangerous. So look, there's a lot of people who are really fed up. I mean, I've talked about this, that there is a, what we can think of as a coalition of the fed up, people with all kinds of different dissatisfactions with the system. But the point is, okay, so you're, on, you're not happy with the status quo, but first of all, what, what do you do with that? I mean, there are opposition parties in Russia. There's the Communist Party, there is the Liberal Democratic Party that is neither liberal nor democratic, but actually a sort of moderately barking mad nationalist party. Um, and then there are other sort of smaller ones. But the point is, these are more or less run by the Kremlin in the main, precisely to, to, to be spoilers, to be fake opposition parties, all part of what the Russians call dramaturgia. In other words, a kind of theatricality of fake politics to give people the belief that they have a choice, but in practice, they don't. So, I mean, it's actually about trying to get people convinced that, well, look, I might as well either not vote or vote for the governing United Russia Party. Because the point is this, look, the results of the election, we know. We know that United Russia is going to win. And in fact, it's, it's almost certainly, in my opinion, going to win a constitutional majority. In other words, a two-thirds majority in, in, in the parliament. But that's just because that's the figure that has already been developed, designed in the presidential administration. They're going to make sure that that is the final result. The real interesting thing about Russian elections is not the outcome. It's how much effort does the Kremlin have to put in to getting that outcome? In other words, how much repression beforehand? How much offering of sweeteners to different bits? I mean, already um, Putin, for example, has uh, authorized one-off payments to pensioners and to military personnel, two key elements of United Russia's support base. And ultimately, how much ballot box rigging do they have to do on, on the days? That's going to be our, our, our best indicator, because yes, people are dissatisfied. And this is why Putin had to 
get this opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, off the scene, firstly by poisoning him and now by, by putting him in, in prison, is because the thing that made Navalny dangerous, two things made him dangerous. One is that he'd actually managed to build a national movement. So it wasn't just in Moscow, middle class and so forth. It actually had, you know, its so-called team Navalny headquarters all around the country. But above all, it's that Navalny was able to cut through and offer hope sense that actually maybe things could change and that change could be for the better. That's what made him dangerous. That's what made him the man that the Kremlin could not ignore. So without Navalny, without his movement, some people are going to vote. I mean, ironically enough, actually, the Communist Party, um, you know, is, is probably going to be one of the main beneficiaries because it's uh, the closest thing there is to a real opposition party um, in, in, in Russia. Not that it's very communist these days, but that's another matter. I read, um, I read that Alexei Navalny's chief of staff had said the Kremlin is trying to roll over all of politics with concrete and still various flowers bloom. So maybe these flowers will be perennials. You know, maybe we really see legs on the Navalny movement. Well, I, I mean, I think that it's not necessarily about the Navalny movement. I mean, I think I absolutely agree that. Look, it, it is clear that Russians are not happy with what's going on and that Russians feel that they deserve a say. They deserve a say in local politics. They deserve a say in national politics. And, you know, for a certain period of time, the first two terms of Putin's presidency in the 2000s, pretty much there was a social contract. No one actually explicitly said it this way, but basically it was, look, you just let us sit back and let us run the country and we will make sure that your lives get better. And it's true. I mean, in, in that decade, Russians obtained a quality of life that they had never achieved before. And on the whole, they were willing to do that. But that was in some ways a choice. They said, look, fine, you're doing a good job. Thanks largely to high global oil and gas prices. Um, and, and, and we'll sit back. But in a way, that social contract has been broken. Because for the last decade, Russians have actually experienced either a stagnation or more recently a, a decline in their quality of life. And Putin has tried to come up with new legitimating narratives, particularly about nationalism, about a sense that exactly the, the hostile West surrounds us and we all have to band together. Russians aren't buying that. And so it may be Navalny. I mean, you know, he may one day be the, the Nelson Mandela um, of Russia, perhaps in a post Putin environment, or it may well be someone else. I mean, let's be honest, uh, you know, two, three years ago, no one would have thought that this figure Navalny would have achieved the kind of status that he did. And likewise, you know, it may well be that someone who at the moment is just some, you know, opposition candidate somewhere in um, Yekaterinburg, currently, you know, pounding the streets, putting leaflets in, 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 in letterboxes, Maybe in two years' time, he'll be the one who, who will be saying that that's the face of the new Russia. That's our show for today. Uh, we'll see you next week. Cheers. Russia's ruling party won control of two-thirds of the seats in the Russian parliament, a showing that will allow the government to amend the constitution and bolster the power of President Vladimir Putin. The result also reflected the weakness of the opposition led by jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny, which claimed that the voting over three days ending on September 19 was neither free nor fair. In the run-up to the elections, the Kremlin largely suppressed any opposition. 